the Bible reading today is from uh, the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, there's been no shortage of uh, end-of-world movies in recent years. Uh, you get movies that tell us that the world's going to end uh, because a, a meteor crashes into the earth, or there are plenty of movies that talk about the plague that's going to come, or climate change has been a, a recent theme in these sorts of movies. C catastrophic weather conditions has been very popular. Um, and then there's some movies that talk about robots and dragons, that that's how the world's going to end. Pretty sure that's not correct, but I could be wrong. Um, and nuclear war seems to be the most common theme amongst those end-of-world things. But what surprises me is how many of these movies seem to borrow biblical ideas with what they want to say and even with their titles. The Bible certainly does talk about end times. It talks about uh, the day that God will bring about an end to all things and, and a judgment, a reckoning will take, and pl will take place. Now, this morning we're looking at this pas passage that uh, a lot of people would consider is an end times discussion from Jesus. This is clearly the trickiest part of Mark's gospel to understand, but when we look at it in context, like in the context of Mark's gospel, what's happened before and what's happening after this passage, well, I think it becomes a little easier to understand. So Jesus is at the temple. Uh, we've, missed, we've jumped over chapters 11 and 12. We're looking at those next Sunday. But Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the, end of at the beginning of chapter 11. And everything that happens in these three chapters revolves around the temple. Now, the temple is the focal point for Jesus' ministry each time he arrives in Jerusalem. We don't have buildings today, I don't think, that would have been like the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have a building that's kind of at the centre of who we are as a nation. There's no building that kind of defines us or explains who it is that we are. 
But the temple was certainly that in the life of Israel. It wasn't just the centre of their religious life. This was where they went to approach God and to make sacrifices and to deal with their sin. But by Jesus' day, the temple also served as a reminder of better days for the people of Israel. When they ruled over their own country, when, when God was their king and they had control of what happened in their country. The temple was, had become, by Jesus' day, the focus of Israel's hope. They were longing for that day when God would restore their kingdom and put a king on their throne, not some Roman pretender, but that they would have their own king on the throne. Jesus and his disciples are walking, as we heard at the beginning of that passage, and one of them comments about how impressive the building was, and it was a pretty impressive building for the day. And Jesus responds by saying, ultimately, not one stone here is going to be left on another. Now, that no doubt would have shocked the disciples. And they leave the Temple Mount, and they go a couple of hundred yards away over to the Mount of Olives, where they can look back on the temple from where they are. And the disciples want to know what he meant by that, about the temple being destroyed. Again, the temple was the symbol of God's presence with his people. But when Jesus comes, God in the flesh, well, there's no longer a need for the temple, is there? God is present with his people in the person of Jesus. And the, temp the temple was how people were to approach God. But Jesus says that he is now the way that you approach God. That whole, no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. And when Jesus died on the cross, you might remember what happened at the temple. The curtain in the temple, the, the thing that separated the holy of holies from the holy place in the temple, the thing that separated God's presence from the rest of the temple, that curtain is torn in two. Jesus' death makes it possible for everyone to approach God. Now, the disciples go on to ask two questions, and you'll see them there in verses 3 and 4. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and opposite the temple, and Peter, James and John asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So they're the two questions that Jesus goes on to answer in this passage. When's it going to happen and what's the sign that it will be fulfilled? So, first question, when is it going to happen? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what we need to know on that one. Jump down to verse 32. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But if there's one thing that stands out in this passage, it's the number of times that Jesus tells his disciples that they need to keep watch. It could be at any time, so keep watch. Have a look at it. Verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, so be on your guard. Verse 33, be on your guard, be alert. Verse 35, therefore keep watch. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. There's an urgency in what Jesus says here, isn't there? He doesn't tell them exactly when these things are going to happen, but he tells them that they need to be ready. It could be any time. And the second question was, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? 
the further this passage moves along, the more colourful and poetic, I suppose, the language becomes. It's a style of language that's called apocalyptic and we find that in a few different places in the pages of the Bible. It's the style of the book of Revelation. It's kind of cartoon-like almost, that it, that it presents and paints these characters that are, that are hard for us to get our head around. I always think that, that apocalyptic literature is a little bit like surrealist art. You're not supposed to look at exact details. You're not supposed to interpret little parts of the picture. You're supposed to step back and take in the whole thing. This is one of the most famous uh, surrealist works from uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, it's called The Persistence of Memory. But then there's other things like Picasso, even though people wouldn't necessarily consider him to be a surrealist. This is Guernica, probably his most famous work. A and he painted this following the German bombing of a little town called Guernica up in northern Spain during the Second World War. Now, there's no planes and there's no bombs in that painting. He's not trying to depict exactly what happened. He's just trying to capture the horror of war. He wanted to capture how terrifying this was. And with apocalyptic literature, you're also supposed to step back and feel what's being said, not seek to identify every single detail. And what's the impression that we get from these verses? Jesus is talking about a dreadful day that is going to come, probably the worst day that the world has known. Look at some of the expressions that he uses. When that day comes, Jesus says, verse number 14, halfway through that verse, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house or take, any, take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. No, he's not literally saying that that's how you should respond. But that's the urgency of this particular day. When this day comes, run for it, is what Jesus says. It's going to be a terrible day. Jump down to verse 17. How dreadful it will be for those in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut off those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. This is the most terrible day that you could possibly imagine. And a little further on, we see that it actually has cosmic proportions. Verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. So is this the end of the world that he's talking about? Jesus ties another event to this dreadful day. Verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He's quoting, if not echoing, what Daniel says in the book of Daniel. There's this image of a Son of Man. But in Daniel, the Son of Man is not coming to earth. He's coming before God on the throne in heaven. 
It's kind of like a coronation ceremony that's taking place where all power and authority is given to the Son of Man. So the coming of the Son of Man to heaven is going to be closely connected to this great and dreadful day. And that's exactly what we read in the book of Acts, isn't it? Following the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see him meet with his disciples, but ultimately he returns in the clouds, it says, returns to the Father. Often in detective movies and crime movies, there are those little details and little clues that are kind of scattered through the movie. Some things that you just overlook, it doesn't seem terribly significant at the time, but later on you see how important that detail was. And I think Jesus is giving us that kind of information in this passage as well. If you just read Mark 13, then you'd see some of the clues and you get a sense of what's going to follow. So have a look. Verses 32 to 36, Jesus tells the disciples that they are to stay awake. They are to be ready and to watch. And he tells a parable about a master who's going away and returning. And it says there in verse 36, If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. We turn over to the very next chapter and Jesus has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens? Jesus goes to pray and the disciples fall asleep. And what does Jesus say to them? Verse 37, he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? In Mark 13, this dreadful time, it says that the sun will be darkened. What was it that happened when Jesus died on the cross? At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. There's a cute little one for the amateur detectives in here. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house or take anything. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that when you flip over to the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 51, we read this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In Mark 13, Jesus said that terrible things are going to happen. In the following chapter, terrible things do happen. The Son of God is arrested. And we see one, someone running off and leaving their cloak behind. Jesus says in Mark 13 that no one knows the hour. But have a look at what he says to the disciples when he's arrested, verse four, chapter 14, verse 41. Returning the third time, this is them asleep in the garden, are you still sleeping? Enough. The hour has come. He kept talking about the hour in chapter 13. Now the hour has come. The last kind of unusual little clue, jump down to verse 35. He tells the disciples that they, that, uh, that they don't know when this is going to happen, but they need to be ready. 
And verse 35 says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Now, it would seem unusual that this was just a complete coincidence, but they're the time frames for all of the events that are just about to happen. It's in the evening that he's betrayed by Judas and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at midnight that the disciples fall asleep there. The rooster crows and Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And at dawn, he's taken before the Sanhedrin. I don't think it's a coincidence that we see this time frame. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have these clues. What's about to follow is the most shocking event in human history. What could be more horrific than Jesus, the one through whom the world was made, the Bible says, is taking the sin of the whole world in his death on the cross. He told them that this generation will not pass before these things take place. And they didn't. They watched as Jesus was nailed to the cross, as the sun was darkened. With all that Jesus said there in verse 13, he was preparing the disciples for what was about to happen, preparing them for what would no doubt be a difficult day as they watched him nailed to the cross. Jesus wants to be clear, these events are not unexpected. His arrest and death is not some kind of mistake. This is the day that he knew would come. This is the day that God's judgment is poured out on him. This would have been a horrible day. But it's a day that brings us forgiveness and life. It's the day that we celebrate as Good Friday. Good for us, not so good for Jesus. You can never sugarcoat the death of Jesus on the cross. And we should never think that it was some kind of easy thing that he just stepped out and did that easily. Good Friday was a dreadful day for Jesus. And that should lead us to greater thankfulness for what it is that Jesus has done. It should lead us to be more thankful that he was willing to suffer for us. It should lead us to be more thankful that he would endure all of that so that we could be forgiven. It should lead us to be more thankful that he's made it possible for us to be a part of his family, of his kingdom. And it should spur us on to live lives of thankfulness in response to what Jesus has done.